If you were with us last time, uh, then you may recall this, but we got about halfway through our, our uh, chapter in Exodus chapter 11. Not a long chapter, but we're going to come back tonight, kind of wrap up the chapter, tie up some loose ends, things that we were not able to get to last time. But we're looking at the announcement, uh, the announcement of the 10th plague. Recall the context that uh, this, this chapter, Exodus chapter 11, is one of those several oh, unfortunate chapter divisions that we see in the scripture uh, where it's clearly related to the previous chapter. Sometimes those chapter divisions, which are not inspired, they came along later, but nonetheless they can sometimes throw us off the scent, if you will, uh, of what's going on in the narrative. But chapter 11 is clearly taking place at the end of, of uh, the scene that was recorded in chapter 10. That is the, uh, the ninth plague where we see that it's the plague of darkness. We see Pharaoh calling Moses and Aaron in, requesting that they uh, you know, plead with Yahweh and that the, the, they would experience relief from the plague. And while Moses and Aaron are still in conference with Pharaoh, they give the announcement that is contained in chapter 11. All right, And the announcement is they're announcing the, the coming 10th and final plague, the, the death of the firstborn, which will be recorded in the next chapter, chapter 12. It's the actual Passover event uh, as it's recorded. And there's, there's obviously lots of stuff to talk about there. But last time as we looked at chapter 11, we, we considered again the setting, which I just explained, that it's really still in the same conversation. They're still in the court of Pharaoh they don't actually leave Pharaoh's court until verse 8 of chapter 11. All right? Yes? That's confusing to me because if he's still in the court of Pharaoh, then how come in verse 2 it says, Now speak in the ears of the people and let everybody know the neighbor and every woman of her neighbor is jewels of silver and jewels of gold. How can he talk to the people if he's in Pharaoh's court? Yes. So, <clears throat> so we conjectured there's two possibilities uh, of what's going on there look at let me draw your attention back to verse one right this is why there's a chapter break in english because it looks like at first there it's a new scene right so like verse one it says and the lord said unto moses right he says yet i will bring one more plague upon pharaoh upon egypt afterwards he'll let you go hence when uh, he'll let you go he'll surely thrust you out uh, altogether so speak in the ears of the people that when they're thrust out right that uh, they ask for plunder, silver, gold, jewels, etc. And then the Lord gives people the favor, etc. So, and so that's where Moses then makes the announcement in verse 4. Thus says the Lord, about midnight, I'm going to go out in the midst of Egypt. So there's two ways to take that. First, um, this is probably a, uh, an insertion when it comes to... We talked about it briefly last time under that second point, the structure of the announcement that the new information shows up in verses 4 uh, and following, but it's framed by two repetitions, things that we've already seen in the narrative thus far. Uh, in other words, it's, it's in a sense, it's, because uh, don't forget, the, the original audience would have heard this text read rather than read it for themselves uh, most, most of the time. So as a result, there's, there's the way that the narrative itself is crafted and recorded is to aid 
in that process of listening to it read, if that makes sense. So there's several places where it strategically repeats information to catch you up to speed, to remind you of key you know, points that we've already discussed in order to move forward. So that might be first just an editorial comment, right? It's reminding of you of something that God had already told Moses in the past that is now important for us to remember before he gives the new announcement in verse 4. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? So it's really an editorialist insertion, if you will, to remind us of that. That's probably the best way to take it. Others will argue that this is the Lord speaking to Moses, like almost like speaking in his ear in the moment, like while he's still, still before Pharaoh. It's like God is reminding Moses of this and giving Moses new information. You know, that's possible. But I think it's probably an editorial comment, kind of catching us up to speed with what has already been predicted. Uh, but then it's, it's helping us understand why that, you know, that, that information is important to be reminded of for the new information. So it's predicted. What's that? Yeah, it's a couple different t- places it's predicted earlier. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, it's the first time it's predicted is actually all the way back in Genesis, Genesis 15. Yeah, and then it also shows up in the Exodus uh, account as well, where God foretells that that'll be the case. They'll plunder. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, so that's where we did. We have to we had to pause a little bit last week and kind of hash, you know, kind of hash through that a little bit because the setting of the announcement is confusing. A lot of people separate chapter 10 and 11 and don't realize they're, they're still the same narrative unit. And then the structure is also kind of confusing because of exactly what Simone brought up. It's like, wait a minute, you know, what's going on here? Well, verses one to three is, is, uh, or yeah, verses one to three is kind of your repeat Insertion of information that we've already heard, but it's important for us to remember because God's about to announce the actual 10th plague. The 10th plague is announced, verses 4 and following, right, where Moses says, verse 4, thus says the Lord about midnight will I go out in the midst of Egypt, all right? So this is the first announcement that the 10th plague is coming. He says, and all the firstborn, verse 5, in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sits upon his throne, even unto the firstborn of the maidservant that is behind the mill, and all the firstborn of beasts. And there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there was none like it, nor shall there uh, be like it any more. But against any of the children of Israel shall not a dog move his tongue against man or beast, that you may know how that the Lord doth put a difference or distinction, separation between the Egyptians and Israel. All these your servants shall come down unto me and bow themselves unto me, saying, Get you out, and all the people that follow you. And after that, I will go out. And then, so that's the announcement, the verses 4 to 8. And then here's the narrative. It says, And he, Moses, went out from Pharaoh in great anger. And the Lord said unto Moses, Pharaoh shall not hearken unto you. In other words, you gave him the warning, but he's not going to listen. Why? Again, God's reiterating stuff he's already said. But he says, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. And Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would not let the children of Israel go out of his land. All right? Exactly. Exactly. Kind of what we were talking about a men's group a little bit. So last time, we, we talked through those first two points, the setting of the announcement, structure of the announcement, and then we, we got, oh, about halfway through the significance. In other words, we pointed out five things that we wanted to discuss 
regarding the significance of this announcement. And these five things, I think we, we covered three of them last week, and we'll pick it up here. Uh, we introduced a little bit the fourth, but we'll pick it up and we'll do number four and five. But we, this, this chapter is significant in that, and the announcement of the coming 10th plague is significant. And there was these five things we wanted to highlight. First, the plundering of Egypt, right? You recall that we, we talked about half a dozen things, why that's significant to the narrative, right? God predicted it before, so it's proving his faithfulness. Uh, it's, it's a sense of justice, right? That the, the children of Israel are being paid, if you will, for their years of slave labor. Um, Egypt is also being punished, right? In other words, they are being deprived because they were the oppressors of Israel. We see God providing graciously for them through this event, this event uh, in that they're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years after this. And they need you know, material goods to make it through because they're, they're going to be nomads. They're not going to have a settled lifestyle where they're farming, etc. Right? They're going to need uh, material goods, but those material goods will also be used by God to, uh, he'll command them to build the wilderness tabernacle, and they'll use this plunder to do just that. So there's lots of reasons why that plundering of Egypt is significant. But then second, we talked about just the polemic, uh, or you know, the, the attack against the Egyptian pantheon, uh, the significance of the plague happening at midnight. We talked about that. And then the angel of death, which there's a debate, if you recall. You know, what is the angel of death? Who is that? Is it Yahweh himself, right? In, in other words, is it God the Father? Is it God the Son, right? Or is it uh, some other angel that is tasked with the, uh, you know, the, the job, the responsibility of slaying the firstborn? And there's different passages that, that tend to read differently when it comes to that. So there's a debate on that, whether ultimately, however, God claims really the responsibility for it. He, he describes particularly, I just read it, but it says in verse 4, he gives a wordplay. He says that thus says the Lord about midnight, will I go out? And there's a, the go out is actually the word from which we get the word. Exodus, exactly. In other words, you haven't let the children of Israel, my people, go out of Egypt, so I'm going to go out in, within the land of Egypt, you know, and, and he's going to enforce this judgment. You got your hand up? Yeah. I was thinking when we were um, doing Proverbs on Sunday about the lady wisdom and stuff, and I was wondering, I was thinking about this, could the angel of death also be like a personification of God's wrath? Maybe? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's possible, for sure. You know, it's just, the, the question is, you know, what, what was the agent that carried it out? You know, in other words, because I think clearly God is, you know, venting out, yeah, his wrath. But, you know, what was the mechanism? You know, I, I don't know. Was it God himself? Was it, did he send an angel, right? Because there's different passages. It always credits Yahweh with it, right? In other words, he gave the order, may have carried it out himself, Right or there's but there's a couple places in the Psalms. Remember we read Psalm 105 last week, where it says he sent out evil angels among them. Right, and the word again, there's different translations to translate that uh, differently. Can mean evil angels, meaning like demonic forces that God allowed, you know, to go wreak havoc, or angels that were sent on an errand that brought evil. In other words, evil is often used idiomatically to just refer to disaster, something that befalls them, something disastrous. So that's the other way to take that phrase. Yeah. That, aside, that, <clears throat> that can 
appreciate that the Lord is very sinless. Right. Right. And that's where, you know, the, the word evil is, 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 it's an old King James translation. Most new translations will avoid that word and they'll use the word disaster. It's, it's the same Hebrew word, it's ra'ah, but it means different things in different contexts. Yeah. Is because, for instance, in Isaiah, God, there's a verse that explicitly says that Yahweh, he says, I, Yahweh, create ra'ah. You know, in other words, he creates disaster. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, in other words, he's sovereign over the events of history. Uh, you have a hand? Yeah. But that's not evil, though, because it's, it's just. Exactly. Exactly. He's causing the disaster, but it's just to do so. Exactly. So he could go out Correct. He could go out to cause disaster, but it's not evil. Exactly. Exactly. In other words, it's a just recompense. It's retribution. It's not, there's nothing, Im- right, there's nothing immoral about it. That's right. That's right. But tonight, our focus is going to be those final two points of significance. First, we're going to talk about the death of the firstborn. And then second, the reaction to the plague that is brought up in verse 7 and why that may be significant. And then we'll, we'll wrap up the chapter by looking at verses you know, 8, 9, 10. And we'll set the stage for next week, which we'll jump into chapter 12 and the actual record of the Passover itself. Um, but first of all, let's consider briefly the death of the firstborn. In other words, why this is such a significant and climactic plague. What was it about? Because remember, the ten plagues are climaxing, right? God is building them in, in a particular way to where they're climaxing. And the most severe plague is last. And, but what was it about the death of the firstborn that makes it so... Uh, you know, significant and so dramatic and climactic. Well, I would suggest to you that the striking of the firstborn is significant in at least three ways, all right? And, you, and maybe you can fill in uh, a blank and, and add an extra reason, but I think there's at least three reasons why we should see the death of the firstborn as significant. First of all, again, this fulfills God's prediction. Back in Exodus chapter 4, this was all the way back in the burning bush scene in chapters 3 and 4, God predicted that this would be the case. Recall this. Let's, let's actually go put our eyes back on that just real quick. But in Exodus chapter 4, verse 23, God predicted that this would be the case, but he's doing it. Not only this, this verse is not only a prediction, but it's also an assertion of the justice, as we just discussed briefly, the justice involved in this. <clears throat> Back in uh, chapter 4, let's see, let's do... Uh, so let's pick it up in verse 21, read 21 to 23. It says, The Lord says unto Moses, When you go to return into Egypt, see that you do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hand. In other words, remember, he just gave him several signs to perform. Remember this? Like the throat on the staff turns into a snake, right? The leprous hand, the water into blood. Those are the signs by which God equipped Moses to go and, and be authentic or authenticated as a genuine divine messenger, right? In other words, Moses walks in and says, thus says Yahweh, let my people go. Well, Pharaoh is going to say, well, you know. Who are you? By what authority do you do this? But by giving signs, he's showing that, look, Yahweh has empowered me to be his messenger. I'm his spokesperson. I'm speaking on behalf of Yahweh. But then he says, uh, verse 21, when you do this, right, he says, I will harden his heart, and he will not let the people go. 
Verse 22, And you will say unto Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. Okay, so there's where it's significant. He says, Israel, Yahweh speaking, is Israel is my son, even my firstborn. And I say unto you, let my son go, that he may serve me. And if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will slay your son, even your firstborn. Right? In other words, it's a tit for tat. There's justice. There's retribution involved here. He's, he, Yahweh is claiming Israel's special status as his firstborn. And you remember... We talked about that, it was a while back, but when we were in Exodus 4, we talked about the significance of that, um, that Israel as the nation is called is Yahweh's firstborn. And the idea is that God has chosen Israel to be the means by which he will rule the world, right? It's, uh, the idea of firstborn is a rulership status title. And so he's, he's claiming that Yahweh is saying, Israel is my special people and God is going to rule the world through Israel. So he claims them as his firstborn, and he says, hey, let him go. And if you don't, then I'm going to take your firstborn. All right? So the first reason this is significant is because Yahweh predicted that this would be the case. And it's not, not only did it predict it, but it's just, right? He's saying it's, it's, kind of, it's again, it's retribution. It's tit for tat. It says, you hang on to my firstborn, then I'm going to take yours. And that's, of course, exactly what happens. Um, again, however, second significance to this is again, no surprise, because this is a point of significance in every single one of the plagues that we have seen thus far. But this also serves as a religious polemic, right? That word polemic just means an attack, a religious attack, where he's attacking the Egyptian pantheon. He's humiliating the Egyptian pantheon. And there are at least six different Egyptian deities that were supposed to protect children, and so this particular plague was a direct assault not only on those six different deities, but also on Pharaoh's own godhood. Because by taking Pharaoh's firstborn, that is the one who would rule in Pharaoh's place one day, right? He's in the lineage of Pharaoh. He's, it's the line of succession. That by attacking that, he is not only attacking those six different Egyptian deities, but even Pharaoh himself, who is considered as a demigod. Right? In other words, the line of Pharaoh is considered as divine. And so to attack the line of Pharaoh is, again, to attack the divinity, to attack the religion of Egypt, to humiliate these various gods. So again, no surprise there. We've seen this over and over and over again, um, this polemic idea, I mean, but we're seeing it yet again. However, there's a third reason, I think, why it, it, would, it is significant, and that's just a practical reason. It, it's, it's, a, it's a practical attack against Egyptian society, not only a religious polemic and a prediction that is just, but it's also practical in that there's this mirrorism that at every level of society, look again at verse 5, he says that all the firstborn of the land of Egypt shall die. And then notice he gives these kind of categories. He says, from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sits on his throne, right? So the highest level of, of Egyptian society will be impacted by this. And then he says, even to the firstborn of the maidservant that's behind the mill. And now, <clears throat> we, sh we see this several times in the scripture. Uh, I talk about it every once in a while when, you know, where it pops up. But when you see those who grind at the mill or you know, they draw water or they hew wood. Those particular jobs were considered the most menial tasks 
In other words, their daily tasks, it's like washing the dishes. You know what I'm saying? It's just a constant task that never goes away and nobody really wants to do it. You know what I'm saying? Maybe you enjoy doing that, but you know, it's like it's the daily chores. That's what it means. So when it's talking about the hewer of wood, the drawer of water, or the person at the mill, right? Grinding, you know, their, their grain into flour. Those were daily tasks. Nobody wanted to do them. And so the concept is that it's the most menial job. So the, the lowest of low in Egyptian society, which by the way, most of the times when they had slaves in Egyptian society, the slaves did those tasks, right? I mean, they, they, you give the slave the job you don't want to do, right? So that's kind of the idea. We see it several times. Remember the Gibeonites, for instance, when they uh, give themselves over to Israel and they, they become voluntary slaves in Joshua chapter 9, what does Israel do with them? hewers of wood and drawers of water, right? It's like, that's what you guys are going to do from here forward, right? Because that's the menial task. So that's the point. That's the mirrorism in verse 5, is that from the highest, the court of Pharaoh himself, all the way down to the most menial slave, including, it says, even the firstborn of the beasts, right? Which I think is so profound (laughs) that God is just going to say, this is a wholesale judgment, right? I mean, everything is going to be impacted, that all of them, the firstborn, is going to die. And so everything, every strata of Egyptian society is going to be impacted by this. But he's attacking specifically the firstborn. Now, again, we we mentioned this last time uh, briefly, but I think it's worth a little bit of review and going a little bit further in this. Go to Psalm 78 and Psalm 105. They're just two places. You know, I, I love the the way that God designed the scripture where you have places like this where you have the narrative story recorded whether it's Exodus or it's like the life of David or whatever but then you have a, a later poetic section of the scripture that is reflecting upon it and it, it's like the commentary the Bible can serve as a commentary on itself and it's, it's, it's like you're getting the Bible in stereo, if you will, surround sound. It's giving you multiple, you know, renditions of the, you know, and accounts. It's really profound. Well, here's an example. I encourage you, you know, as, as, as uh, just on your own, in your own study and meditation, read through Psalm 78, read through Psalm 105. These are just a couple of places. Read through, you know, Ezekiel 20. We've, we've dipped into that one a couple, three times. Other passages that are reflecting back upon the Exodus account. And it adds some really cool details here and there. But here's a good example of it. In Psalm 78, verse 51, and then same thing in Psalm 105, it says that the Lord, again, well, again he's, he's talking about, uh, here's an interesting, the evil angel comment is back in verse 49. Um, who was it? So Becky, you just asked about the wrath of God. Notice verse 50. It says, He made a way to his anger. He spared not their soul from death, but gave their life over to the pestilence. In other words, the plagues, and particularly here in this context, he's talking about the 10th plague, is, yeah, it's, it's a result of God's wrath. He made way for his anger. And the word made way literally means he leveled out a path. It's the idea is that he made a road so that it could go without being hindered, right? So he, he opened the door, if you will. But then verse 51, it says, And he smote all the firstborn of Egypt. And then notice the commentary. This next phrase is, to me, very helpful. He says, The chief of their strength. And then, of course, he says, In the tabernacles of Ham, which is another whole 
discussion, right? But the Tabernacles of Ham, meaning that takes you back to the Table of Nations, right? Genesis, right? You have the, the sons of Noah, and all nations are descended from Shem, Ham, or Japheth, right? Well, Mitzrayim, which is the founder of Egypt, and if you, if you read Hebrew, the word Egypt is the word Mitzrayim. It, we translate it into English, into Egypt, but it's the Hebrew word Mitzrayim. It's talking about the guy who was the son of Ham, who founded the Egyptian nation. All right, so that's, that's anyways, so that, that's one of those places where it's an echo back to the book of Genesis. But then same thing, let me just show you, Psalm 105 says the same thing, but pop over there, and again, we could read several verses describing this same event uh, in fact, let's just, we'll, we'll kind of briefly read the account. If you're reading Psalm 105, look at verse, uh, start in verse 24. I'm getting to verse 36, but, you know, context is key, right? So verse 24 says, And he increased his people greatly. In other words, he's, he's, he's walking through the history of Israel. If you're familiar with Psalm 105, he's talking about the patriarchal, patriarchal period, the Abrahamic covenant, Joseph being down in Egypt, and then he's talking about the Exodus. So he gets to verse 24, and this is the story of the Exodus summarized in like 10 verses. He says, He increased his people greatly, made them stronger than their enemies. Right, that's Exodus chapter 1, right? They multiplied. It says, verse 25, He turned their heart to hate his people, to deal subtly with his servants. Right? That's the Egyptian oppression against Israel. But remember, this is pointing out that God is sovereign over this. Right? God is allowing that hatred, that anti-Semitism to take place. Why? Because God predicted that the exodus would happen. And so he's got to grandstand. He's got to you know, get all the ducks in a row, if you will, to make this happen. Verse 26, he sent Moses his servant and Aaron whom he, ch- he had chosen. They showed his signs among them and wonders, where? In the land of Ham. There's the Ham comment again. He sent darkness and made it dark. And they rebelled not against his word. And again, that's probably a reference to Moses and Aaron that they fully obeyed Yahweh's commands. He turned their waters into blood. So notice he's simply rehearsing. He's not even doing it in order. Right? He's just rehearsing some of the key moments of the, of the plagues. Verse 29, he, he turned their waters into blood, slew their, fl- their fish. Their land brought forth frogs in abundance in the chambers of their kings. He spake, and there came diverse sorts of flies and lice in all their coasts. He gave them hail for rain and flaming fire in their land. He smote their vines also and their fig trees and brake the trees of their coasts. He spake and the locusts came and caterpillars and that without number and did eat up all the herbs of their land and devoured the fruit of their ground. And then here's our uh, text. He smote all the firstborn in their land. And again, he calls them the chief of all their strength. And then, of course, it says he brought them out. Forth with silver and gold, there was not one feeble person among their tribes. Egypt was glad when they departed, for the fear of them fell upon them. Right? We commented on that briefly last week as to the motivation. Remember how there was a change of heart between, you know, the Egyptian people and how they viewed the Hebrews. They were very anti-Semitic earlier, right, to oppress the, the Hebrew people. Now it says they fear the Hebrew people, and they thrust them out of the land, right? They say, oh, yeah, here, take our stuff, take our gold, take our silver, take our jewels, right? Just get out of here. Exactly, just get out of here. Why? Because the fear fell upon them. But notice, in both of these passages, I want to capitalize on that phrase where it calls the firstborn the chief of their strength. Because what's important for us is that you know, this is something that we can easily lose touch 
with because of our modern society. We don't really hold to the right of primogenitor, primogenitor like most of ancient societies did, and many modern societies, particularly Eastern societies, still do this. But Egyptian society, like most ancient societies, respected the right of primogenitor. And that is the passing of the rulership through the firstborn, right? So the idea is that, you're right, you're familiar with this, we talk about it every once in a while. The right of firstborn really comes with two basic rights. First, you have the right of rule, the rulership. In other words, the, to be the next patriarch to the clan, right? That, and, and again, we live in Western society, we live in nuclear families. We're, we're way different. You know, in, in much, many parts of the world to this day, they still live this way. But Israel and most ancient societies lived in, it was a clan tribal society. So they live as extended families. And I mean, so there's, there could be, and the whole point is they're trying to strengthen the clan and they're trying to get population growth, right? They're trying to, because it, it was clan against clan, right? It was kind of like, because it was a dog eat dog world out there, right? And so your strength was in the size and the strength of your clan, right? And so the idea is they would clump together and they would live in the same vicinity. And you, so you would have a patriarch that would be over multiple family units, right? But then who would become the next patriarch? The firstborn, right? And so, yeah. I'm just assuming firstborn society, so, so, no, that's a great question. So firstborn is assuming a son, yeah. Because at least in Israeli and most, not all, but most ancient societies, it was the male leadership. It was a patriarchal society. Patriarchal is the same word, we just oppose, we kind of take that word because that comes from Greek, right? Because and, and most Western society, right, where we inherit much of our lingo from Latin or Greek. So patriarch is patros, father, and arche, rule. Patriarchal means father ruled, right? That's the idea. It's a clan tribal sort of structure. That's what it's talking about. Yeah. And that kind of society went clear into Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly right. It's really only modern Western world, modern being in the last, I mean, even, you're right, some of it's even, yeah, because it it's still holding true in many parts of the world. You know, I mean, when, when I was, again, I mean, we talked about it once about our, our, our missionary to India. It's still a very tribal culture over there. Do you remember when we were trying to talk about, you know, helping him out and they were, they were trying to buy some land over there? Do you remember how he talked about how he had to go to the tribal chiefs? And he went to multiple chiefs to get permission to make sure that everybody was okay with him buying the land. Right? You remember this? It's, it's a tribal culture. And, they ha- and it's, it's totally different than the world in which we live. And so sometimes we, can, we, we don't relate right away to this. But the point is, the firstborn would, number one, be the, the, they would have the right of rule you know, rulership over the clan. And there were strata, you know, there were stratas of rulership, right? You have the patriarch, but then you have elders, right? These are, again, guys that are kind of a step down, if you will, but they still have a rulership status in their family or a segment of the clan or whatever. But the idea is that these guys are all firstborns in their families. So what is the backbone of that society? It's your firstborn. Not only in authority, but in resources. Because what's the second thing you get? You get the double portion. 
All right? You remember this? Uh, there's, again, firstborn status comes with two basic rights. The right of primogenitor comes with two basic rights. First, rulership, right? Authority. Second, material wealth, right? So, and the double portion means, for instance, I use the illustration, my father has four boys, right? So if we were to work in this system, what he would do is he would divide his inheritance into five portions. The firstborn would receive two of those portions. Does that make sense? So the double portion is, it's a reference to wealth, material goods. And the idea is that it's not only a blessing, but it's also giving him the means by which he can, he can rule, he can exercise authority. All right, so those are the, the, that system that is sometimes not understood or appreciated by us is really important for us to understand because what is happening is when God destroys the firstborn in Egypt, this 10th plague would have absolutely devastated Egyptian society by robbing them of their next generation of leadership. This is the backbone of their society. If you look at our society and you start thinking about the quote-unquote authorities of our society at every level, if we were to just evaporate the authority overnight, right? Anarchy. It would just be, it would be absolute anarchy. And I mean, how do you rebuild after that, right? I mean, it's going to be chaos for a while. Uh, I mean, and not, not only on, on the personal level, right, of having loss in the family, but at the governmental level, uh, you know, I mean, at, at all levels of society, this would be absolutely devastating. Does that make sense? Yeah. Right. But I'm just wondering, family name also. What if many of those firstborn was the only son in that family? That's right. And then the tribal name could not be carried on, or the clan. That's absolutely true. That's absolutely true. I mean, everyone follow that? Dan just brought up the fact that what if, because it says every family was impacted by this. We, you know, we, we'll get to it in chapter 12. But there, every family was impacted by this. And, but the reality is there would have been some, undoubtedly, that lost the only son in the family. And so their family line, their name would go extinct. Yeah. And so, I mean, this is, and, and that's another whole level of, you know, we could get into and we don't have much time to get into it tonight, but is the, that was one of the greatest fears of ancient society, was to go extinct, like your family lineage ceased to exist. That even happened in the last years of my own particular family, my own mother and father. Mm-hmm. Nothing to carry on that heritage. That's right. And it's still, I mean, it's, it's still alive and well in many parts of the world today, even in modern Western society to a degree. Mm-hmm. You're right. We've we've largely abandoned those you know ideas, and because we we focus on the nuclear family, et cetera. But you're right. This, and and just try to place yourself back in those shoes, if you will, and just recognize how utterly devastating this would have been for the Egypt. It would have crippled them as a nation and as a people. There was lamentation <clears throat> in our family because of it. Say it again. There was. There was lamentation in yeah. our family because of that. Absolutely. In fact, let's, let's, let's go with that next step because that's the next thing I want to talk about is the reaction to this plague, all right? Is let's consider 
our text records two opposite reactions that take place when this plague happens. It says there's going to be a great cry or a lamentation and a great silence. All right. In other words, it, 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 it says this uh, explicitly in our text that verse 6 says there'll be a great cry through all the land of Egypt such as has never been, like this will be the most disastrous event Egypt will ever experience. But then it says, verse 7, that not against the children of Israel shall even a dog move its tongue. In other words, there's going to be this great cry and a great silence. Now, the great cry that's referred to in verse 6 undoubtedly would include the weeping, the wailing, the lamentations, if you will, as well as perhaps prayer, you know, because the word is also used for prayer, to cry out to God or your gods. So undoubtedly, this would also would have happened, is that when the Egyptians experienced this, it would have been absolutely devastating. And they would have been crying, weeping, wailing, probably crying out to their gods in prayer, which is interesting when, when you first, I, I want to parallel that to two passages just to illustrate it. First, you see back in chapter 3, this is something that God took attention to was the cry of his people. Do you remember this? In Exodus 3, the burning bush scene, verse 7 and following, it says, The, the Lord said, I surely have seen the affliction of my people, which are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So he then promises, I'm going to come down and deliver them. Um, in other words, we've seen this, and even backing up to chapter 2, verse 24, same thing. It says, the Lord heard their groaning and remembered his covenant. In other words, the, this is, again, one more of the several examples that we've seen of poetic justice, right? The idea is that what goes around comes around. God is the, the cry that... The Egyptians forced out of the Israelis as they oppressed them is now being turned back upon them. They're going to cry out in loss and sorrow. Does that make sense? So there's a poetic justice going on. But I also want you to just contemplate for a second um, the, how this grieving that would have taken place is, is going to be all the more exacerbated by the fact that it's the death of the firstborn. Do you remember this? It's kind of a, it's a little known passage. Well, I don't know. I don't know if it's little known. Some people, many know it. Zechariah 12 is talking about, it's actually talking about the, the second coming uh, of Christ. And it's, it's kind of, it's, it's the whole idea of him descending in the clouds and they're going to look upon him whom they have pierced. Remember this? And it says they will weep for him as one who weeps for a firstborn son. All right. In other words, it's it's the idea is that in ancient society, there's you know there's so much that is put, you know, there's so much at stake when it comes to the firstborn, that the loss of a firstborn is worse than the loss of a different of another child. That's the idea is because there was so much that was put on that right of primogenitor. That's how the society operated. And so it was, all the, it was all the more difficult to lose that firstborn. And so the idea is that when he says they will weep, just as he does in Zechariah, as if it was for a firstborn son, right? It's the idea of uncontrollable weeping, right? It's the, it's the idea of loss, devastation, 
you know, beyond degree is kind of the concept. Does that make sense? And that's what he, you know, and he's talking about the bitterness of this. And I don't have time to go recreate the whole context of Zechariah 12, but notice in that verse, verse 10 in particular, he says, I will pour out on the house of David upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look upon me whom they have pierced. It's ultimately referring to Christ who's descending in the clouds. It says, and they shall mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. Does that make sense? And then it actually gives an example in the day that there'll be a great mourning in Jerusalem as in the morning of Hadad Ramon in the valley of uh, Megadon. And he's talking about, again, a different event that actually takes place in uh, the days of Josiah. In other words, he's likening it, likening it to a, if you remember that account, the Hadad Ramon, it's talking about the death of Josiah. Remember the King Josiah? Um, so there's a, uh, how much do I want to get into it? I love Josiah, right? Josiah is a really important Israeli figure. Well, Judean, he was a Judean king. But he's coming right at the end, right before the nation crumbles and is carried off into captivity. And he was really seen as the last good king. He is the last good king. He was the last ray of hope for the nation. He was so godly. Do you remember this? That God said, I will not let the nation fall in your days. You are too godly. I won't let the nation fall. Man, don't you wish we had a leader like that, right? That was so godly. God wouldn't let the nation fall as long as that person was alive. Wow. That was Josiah. Well, then he goes out and he gets killed in battle against Pharaoh Necho. And it says, when they carry his body, and just imagine the nation that is staking so much of their hopes upon Josiah. They witness this guy, who's a young man, by the way. When he dies, he dies young. And he's being brought back into the city as a corpse. And the nation, it says, wails and laments. And in fact, the prophet Jeremiah it says, and we don't have it contained in the scripture, but the Bible says in two different places that Jeremiah writes a lamentation for Josiah, like because it was such a devast- it was a national catastrophe, and so they the whole nation stops and they weep over the fall and death of Josiah. That's what you know Zechariah is is likening this weeping that will happen when Jesus comes back and they discover. Right? They look upon him whom they had pierced. He's talking about the unbelieving Jewish nation that then sees Jesus as the true Messiah. And they, they will sob convulsively, breaking down, realizing, you know, it's a picture of true repentance. But they will, total, they will recognize their total rejection of him was, was wrong, was false. Yeah. Is that first 10 a nod to the Trinity? Sorry, I know that's off topic. No, where at? Zechariah? Yeah, 12 10. Um, how so? What do, what do you mean? Well, it's, uh, it sounds to me like God the Father talking, mm-hmm. and he refers to himself as those whom they have pierced. Would that be the piercing on the cross? Yeah. Or am I off base? Yeah, it is. It is, because John will quote this in John 19, the Gospel of John. He'll quote this verse to, to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. when he Because he says, I looked upon him and they pierced him. And, and then he quotes Zechariah 12. So it's it's a re- the him whom they had pierced is a reference to Jesus. Almost like God talking. Yep. Yep. And he even mentions the Spirit. He's going to pour out a Spirit of grace and supplication upon them. Yeah. yeah. No, I see your point. It's a nod to the Trinity, right? Yes, 
Amen. That's right. We have all three members of the triune Godhead right there in one verse. There's a lot of verses like that. That's, that's a cool one. Yes, ma'am. That's good. Amen. No, that's really good. That's excellent. That's right. That's right. He is God's firstborn. And it's misread sometimes, right? I mean, oftentimes, but like the Jehovah's Witness, for instance, will say, you know, and they go to Colossians 1.15, they say Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, and they misread that, right? They read that as the first one that was born in creation, or in other words, the first created being. That's what they teach, is that Jesus is a created being. Right? He was just the first created being. But that's not what the term firstborn means. Right? In fact, I mean, and that's the idea, is that's a good example of them misreading the scripture by import, importing Western culture into the Bible when it was written from a different culture. Right? But that's a, that's a good example where they, you know, they, they kind of butcher that. They just... Not kind of. They really butcher that. <laughs> right? Because it leads them to a very false conclusion, which is what the next verse, you know, Colossians 1.16 says that he created all things, visible and invisible. Anyways, don't get me started. But that's good. That's a good observation. Amen. All right. So, again, all I want you to see is that there, this would have been an uncontrollable sobbing. Right? But I, I got to end. Um, so let's just quickly look at this last point. And that is this, uh, this not only loud crying, this great cry, but also the great silence, which is mentioned in the very next verse. In other words, it, it, verse 7 records that a great silence will also occur. In other words, their mouths will be stopped. That's the idea. You know, it's, it's similar to like the Romans 3 passage where it talks about how God will silence everyone who speaks against him. In other words, all of our stupid excuses, right? are going to be silenced, right? We're going to stand condemned. And that's the idea is he's going to shut their mouths that they will no longer mock or lift up a voice uh, against Israel. And he says, not even so much as a dog will wag its tongue. And the idea is that even as, as Israel marches out of the land, that there's not even going to be, you know, the dogs barking. You know, the idea is the normal sort of routine of life. Nope, not happening. It's going to be such a somber event that they're going to watch Israel march out totally triumphant. Yeah. It would mean, as you pointed out previously, they would also be weeping and wailing for their gods. They won't be weeping and wailing for their gods anymore either. It's going to silence them. Yes, that's a, good, that's a good connection. So the weeping and wailing and crying out to their gods are even going to be silenced. Right? Their gods are not going to answer their prayers. That's a powerful... That's a powerful thought. What was that? I think they're just going to be all standing there, just stuck in place, watching. Yeah, I mean that's that's kind of how I picture it. Now it's a later context, but you know, like in in Exodus thirty three, where you know, with the people, remember when God moves his his tent outside the camp, and then God meets 
with Moses there, and it says everyone stands at the door of their tent, and they just stand watching. That's how I picture the Exodus, yeah, is there's just this stunned silence. Exactly. And they, it's like, what do, you, what do you do, right? I mean, that's the whole idea, is they are totally, the Egyptians, that is, are totally defeated. They're humiliated. They're silenced. They can't bring a charge. And Israel, God's people, is marching out in absolute triumph. And this is, this is the ultimate idea. You know, some see in this maybe an illusion. You know, again, the whole polemic thing, the dog reference, some reference, some think that's maybe a reference to Anubis, the dog-headed, jackal-headed, you know, Egyptian god. Um, so some think maybe there's an, you know, another polemic there that even the gods will be silenced. In other words, it's not just the dogs, but even the dog god right, (laughs) is going to be silenced, that no one is going to speak against God's people because, again, it's a picture of triumph. Yes? I don't even think that the Hebrews will be cheering and yelling because I think they're a little afraid of what's ahead of them. I think so. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, and, and don't forget, I mean, again, this idea of fear and awe, we just read it a second ago, but in Psalm 105, Again, this is, that's the Psalter, but it's commenting back on this scene. And it says that the whole nation feared Israel. Right? I think that's the, the, the picture we should have. When the Exodus occurs, there's like a, there's a fear. They're, they're stunned in silence. And they're just like, whoa. And Israel even, I think, are just, whoa. You know, this is an impressive event. That's right. This, it's a somber event. Bob? I was just kind of thinking that, you know, that silence almost kind of mirrors the darkness where they no, nothing moved from their place, nothing happened. It's almost like they were removed from their lives for enough time to reflect while doing nothing else. Yeah. So I don't know. It's kind of something about that it seems similar. Like Yeah, an interesting yeah connection between the, a parallel, if you will. Like all conglomerate or really dumbfounded or just basically like a, some, like a form of timeout. And honestly, don't we see that? Like, I mean, if you're a parent, have you ever seen that in your kids, right? Where they're just kind of like, you know, they, they, they're going to have all the excuses, right? But then when, when they're caught in the lie or whatever, there's just like this stunned silence. Slack yeah, the slack jaw, like, I got nothing. Yeah, <laughs> like, I'm so caught right now, right? <laughs> and and I, think, I think there's a little of that going on here. It's like, okay, just silence, yes. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. So again, another poetic justice going on is, but specifically in a one-for-one ratio, if you will, they were trying to wipe out all the the sons. They were trying to take away the sons, and but it didn't work. But now they lost theirs. Exactly. Poetic justice, right? God is bringing it back on their own head. That's absolutely correct. Yes? I was thinking that Israel weeping silently after seeing all those deaths and all that God did. I was thinking at a practical level when I was a youngster and seeing my senses get their wrappings. Mm-hmm. I would cry at first and then I keep my mouth absolutely shut because I didn't know what was going to happen to me. That's right. 
It's true. I mean, man, I have very similar experiences, right? My older brother's getting wailed on, you know, and it's like all the other kids get really quiet. You ever notice that? <laughs> it's like, oh no, <laughs> right? <laughs> I don't want to be next. That's right. That's right. And, and we all have movies in our heads right now, right? <laughs> we're seeing this on replay. <laughs> Amen. All right. So next time we're gonna we're gonna pick it up in verse uh, or chapter twelve, and we're gonna start looking at the actual Passover. But there's a lot that happens, you know, where God institutes, he, he regulates this Passover before the actual event takes place, you know, because he wants this to be remembered. He wants it to be commemorated and never forgotten. So he's going to spend a lot of time, uh, you know, working through the details of that. And, and we'll, so we'll jump into that next week. All right. But let's close in prayer. Gracious Father, thank you again for your goodness and your greatness. Lord, as we consider... These events, the warning Moses gave to Pharaoh that the exodus would occur and that there would be a great cry and a great silence, that your people would be vindicated, your enemies would be silenced. Lord, as we look at just the awe of this scene, uh, we pray that you would help us to be awestruck, to be uh, impressed by the somber nature of this event and and what it was for those who rejected you, who opposed you, who uh, attempted, as it was said, to to wipe out a generation of Israelites that in turn uh, received the loss of an entire generation of Egyptians. Lord, as we look at at this scene and, and we unpack it in the weeks to come, we pray that you would give us that sort of somber realization of your power and your greatness and your justice that lord we ought never oppose you but that we ought submit to you we ought follow you recognize that you are the one uh, true and living god the only true and living god so lord we we ask that you would magnify yourself and in through these studies as we contemplate these events that you would help us to to catch a glimpse of your greatness and your glory so that we might stand in awe of you. So we commit this to you in Christ's name. Amen.